Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The movement to defend the Atlanta forest continues. Atlanta is keeping up the fight against two major projects threatening a thousand-acre swath of crucial habitat, forest, and wetland in the southeast area of the city. Since March, there has been fierce protest against construction of what is being called a Cop City, a massive regional police training facility. The Cop City is proposed to be built on the grounds of the old Atlanta prison farm, continuing the legacy of carceral violence on the land. Opposition efforts caused the Atlanta City Council to delay approval for the project, but on September 8th, they voted to lease the former prison farm to the Atlanta Police Foundation, following 17 hours of public comment overwhelmingly opposing the project. The APF funnels money from corporations and wealthy individuals directly to the Atlanta Police Department, bypassing public decision-making process. APD already receives one-third of the Atlanta City budget. The local movement to stop Cop City and to fund the police continues to grow, just like the forest. Destruction of the historic prison farm and initial bulldozing of trees was stopped for several days this week when a protest resulted in the worksite shutting down. According to the police scanner, APD crashed their drone while attempting to monitor the protest. Also threatening the Atlanta forest is Black Hall Studios' movie production soundstage, proposed by the Commonwealth Group, a California-based investment firm. There is long-time local opposition to the project and the unprecedented land swap where DeKalb County traded a forested public park to a private entity. Organizers have taken the corporation and county to court, where the project remains stalled by a civil lawsuit. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau took action against the prison financial services company, JPay, for violating the Consumer Financial Protection Act. JPay charged fees from people being released from prison or jail who have often few resources outside of the balance of their prison trust or commissary accounts. They were obligated to pay these fees to access their own money on prepaid debit cards that consumers were forced to use. JPay also violated the Electronic Fund Transfer Act when it required consumers to sign up for a JPay debit card as a condition of receiving government benefits, in particular gate money, money provided under state law to help people meet their essential needs as they are released from incarceration. As a result of the action, JPay will stop charging most fees, refund $4 million to harmed consumers, and pay a civil penalty of $2 million. Always on the alert for more people to lock up, law enforcement in Monroe County, Indiana, and other locations in the state and beyond has a new tool at its disposal, license plate reading cameras. Monroe County intends to install six such cameras at select intersections to take photos of the license plate of every vehicle that passes by. According to the Indiana lawyer, the photos will be stored and can be accessed during an investigation when the sheriff's department wants to find out if a particular suspect was at or near a particular location at a particular time. Also, the cameras will inform the sheriff whenever a vehicle is linked to a crime in another jurisdiction enters Monroe County. 
Deputies will be able to intercept people driving stolen cars or who have outstanding warrants for their arrest supposedly before they commit crimes in the local community. Better public safety is the ostensible reason for the cameras. Saira Hussein, staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, says she doubts law enforcement's claims that the cameras are being installed to protect the public. She said the cameras are being placed in so-called high-crime communities, which are already under heavy surveillance. The additional surveillance could cause more people to be pulled over, arrested, and incarcerated for, quote, far less serious reasons, end quote. A Monroe County attorney said the cameras contribute to the incarceration state. In some larger cities, she said, a camera is literally on every block, with communities of color targeted particularly. She wonders where the locations of the cameras are in Bloomington and whether they are in the Black community. This week, we hear from Kelly Grace Price, an organizer with the Close Rosies campaign. Rosies refers to the Rose M. Singer facility, an all-women's jail on Rikers Island. On average, Rosie's detains around 630 women, girls, transgender, gender non-conforming, and intersex females while they await trial. Price deconstructs the reformist arguments made by New York City Board of Corrections and shows how they're invalid. She also shows how Mayor de Blasio is gaming the system, using tactics like wagging the tail of the dog and how incoming mayor, Eric McAdams, is already compromised by his pre-existing ties to the New York carceral system. According to Suzanne Singer, the granddaughter of the jail's namesake, who wrote an op-ed for the New York Times highlighting the abuses at Rosie's, quote, Many of the women incarcerated at Rosie's should never have been committed there. 85% of them are mothers. A similar percentage have substance abuse disorders. Most have suffered trauma and violence at the hands of men, and two-thirds report to having a mental illness. The Rose M. Singer Center was supposed to be a beacon to the world, a place where women caught up in the criminal justice system would be treated humanely and kept safe. The jail has not lived up to this vision, however. Instead, it has devolved into a torture chamber where women are routinely abused, housed in unsanitary conditions, and denied medical and mental health services. They are treated as less than human, not as our grandmothers, mothers, daughters, and sisters." Unquote. And now, here's Kelly Grace Price. I'm Kelly Grace Price with the Close Rosies campaign. Rosies, meaning the Rose M. Singer Center, the all-female jail on Rikers Island, is the center of our work. For years, we've heard close Rikers, shut it down, but no one's ever spoken specifically about the women's jails on, on Rikers and the needs of women, girls, trans, gender nonconforming communities that are housed there. Right now, the governor and the mayor have a scheme to move us from Rosie's, which is a county lockup facility that for the most part holds detained people that are pre-sentenced awaiting trial to move them up to the Bedford Correctional Facility in Westchester, which is a maximum security state prison run by the Department of uh, Corrections and Community Renewal. This is a horrible idea for any number of reasons. First of all, the entire scheme is a stunt to gain press points, which is sort of the um, narrative thrust of the mayor's entire criminal justice reform plan is to stay ahead of the media and gain good points in the press. His entire scheme since the beginning of the first day he took office regarding Rikers and our incarcerate population in New York City has been to wag the tail of the dog, to distract, to outmaneuver the public and advocates by always planting positive stories in the press. We've seen it over and over 
back in 2014 when he pretended to end solitary confinement for teenagers, when in fact he just created different units and let kids out of their solitary confinement units for maybe two or three more hours a day. The same happened in 2017 when we were trying to adopt the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which is a federal law meant to protect people in jails and in lockups and also correction officers that work in them from sexual violence. The same thing happened. The, the plan itself, the rule that was passed by the Board of Correction was a very anemic rule with little to no reporting and very few uh, transparent oversight measures. And now we've seen it again with this plan to move women and girls off of Rikers. Here's the story. The mayor is going to get a twofer win in the press with this move because the plan, the scheme, is to move us up to Bedford. The city will wash its hands of having to deal with the female incarcerate population. And then the mayor is going to move everyone from the barge in the Bronx over to Rosie's. So he's going to get a twofer in the press for closing two jails. It's a good scheme if all you're looking to do is score political points. But if you're actually looking to help people in our city jails and the people that work there and to claw our way out of the humanitarian crisis that our jails have become, you'll be looking to do more than just score points in the press with harebrained schemes. The plan to move women to Bedford is unconstitutional. It's against the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. It's illegal under New York State's own criminal procedures laws and regulations. Correction Law 93 specifically states that pre-sentenced people cannot be moved from county lockups <laughs> to state facilities. But you don't hear anyone drawing a line in the sand from our legislature up in Albany. You hear some rumblings and some tweets, but you don't really hear anybody doing anything. There were a couple assembly members from Queens last week that wrote a letter asking the governor and the mayor to put a pause on the transfer. But that's an anemic request to put a pause on something that's unconstitutional and illegal. It's also against the concept of Title IX, which protects all people that are undergoing educational services on Rikers. Those people have to have equal access to their children, equal access to their communities. Um, certainly your chance to score freedom is a great assistance to you in furthering your educational objectives. And if you're sitting 40 miles, 50 miles up the pike in Westchester, you don't have access to your communities. It's harder to get people to come talk to you, to prepare them to testify. Um, I believe Bedford only has two video kiosks at this moment in time. There's not even um, in-person visiting. So uh, there hasn't even been a plan implemented to to fulfill the needs of the people that will be moving up there, how will they even communicate with their lawyers when there are only two video visiting kiosks that need to be used by the entire population of Bedford Hills? Because that population is already sentenced, their needs for constant access with their lawyers, weekly, daily, are not necessarily the same. There's a slew of other problems, um, but... Right now, I'm really trying to focus on getting the state legislators and senators to pay attention to the correction law in 93, uh, because we do have laws. We do have governing processes. We do have a community of advocates who are professional policymakers who are uh, at the ready to write new rules. But the governor and the mayor very tyrannically just wave their magic wand 
and regardless of the laws, decided that they were going to do this. In my opinion, this is people don't people are not taking this as seriously as they should, because if they get away with this kind of magic rewriting of laws and ignoring of government procedures and law change methodologies that the public have standing to participate in, the Board of Correction Charter specifically says anyone that's been held on Rikers has standing with the Board of Correction. So if you just automatically wave your magic wand and remove all those rights and all that standing and all those procedures, what sort of government are we really supporting? What sort of government are we really existing in? We're supporting people in government who do whatever they want, regardless of processes. This is exactly what de Blasio and Hochul and the entire Democratic machine in New York fought against President Trump for for four years. So it's a little confusing me to me to see the same tactics used by our city and state government. Um, we've worked really hard over the last six or seven years uh, that we've formed our coalition to build on a community network of people, of social workers, of lawyers, of practitioners, that mental health providers that specifically help our mothers, our daughters, our sisters, our grandmothers, our aunts, when they come out of the jail, while they're in the jail. Personally, I, I've had mental health counseling since 2011, and I can't imagine if I was ripped away from the facility that was helping me and the people that had, had, have been helping me. Do you know how long it takes to build a rapport with a mental health care provider? Six to eight months, and those are just for easy cases. Other people, it takes a year or two for your mental health care provider to really know you and your story and your ups and downs and your traumas. You only get 45 minutes a week, and 15 of those minutes are usually administrative tasks. Imagine all of these people that are being ripped from their mental health care providers, which, by the way, are really great. The New York City Department of Health and Hospitals, their correctional health services, those doctors, they're Gideon's army. I can't imagine that everyone's needs will be fulfilled um, we heard that six people were transferred on Thursday, last Thursday, and that 10 more will be transferred tomorrow. Um, one of the women that was transferred last Thursday is going to sue in federal court. She has a lawyer, and they're going to file an action against uh, de Blasio and against the governor and against the Department of Correction and the New York City um, Department of Correction as well. And then they'll just keep adding people as they're moved to the case. I don't know if this will be sufficient to deter the plan and the scheme. I'm hoping it is. The city only listens to federal courts. Close Rosie's filed an action in the federal court two weeks ago to stop the transfer. We asked the chief court judge for a um, temporary restraining order to stop the transfer. And the first word that came back was that we didn't have standing because we were not currently incarcerated. Some of our members are currently incarcerated. But since we filed the lawsuit ourselves, pro se, which means I speak for myself, we're not allowed to represent other people. So the word came back from the judge, shore up your arguments. We filed a motion to reconsider and went scurrying off to try and find a lawyer to represent everyone on Rosie's. At this point, I've heard that over 170 people have signed a petition out of the 240 people that are actually on the Rosensinger Center right now have signed a petition to stop the move. It might be more. The last time I heard a number was last Thursday. Um, and the more and more people that are transferred, the more and more people will be added to the lawsuit. At the end of the day, the only thing I can hope is that they'll be compensated for their injuries, for their being stripped of their access to their communities, even for being moved from Gotham, from New York City. This is, for most of us, our cho chosen city. And I can't imagine as an innocent person being shipped 
to another county to await trial. I just, it, it boggles the mind. There's been a lot of problems with the de Blasio administration and the way that they've abused the rulemaking processes to achieve all of their goals. I mentioned the, uh, the rule to change solitary confinement for teens back in 2014, the rule to um, prevent prison rape. At every point, the mayor has used the rulemaking process to gain political points off of false narratives and stories. One of the most egregious things that he's done is he's stacked the Board of Correction with appointees that aren't that shouldn't have necessarily been appointed. And he's been able to control the rulemaking process because of this. The Board of Correction Charter, you know, the city charter is a complicated document. Every different agency, the fire department, the board of the Department of Correction, the sanitation department, uh, they all have a charter, which is a, a, a list of rules and regulations that govern the way that that agency runs. And the Department of Corrections charter, the rule changes are made by the Board of Correction, which is a unique oversight board. We don't have another one like it anywhere in the country that was formed back in the 50s as a result of um, rising population and rising violence in the jails. In the late 1970s, as a result of uh, a period where 17 people were found hanged dead in their cells, including Julio Medina, the famous young lord, the city endeavored to change the Board of Correction charter to allow less uh, hindrance by the mayor. Before the change in the late 1970s, early 80s, the mayor appointed all nine people to the Board of Correction. But it became clear that if the mayor had control over the oversight board, that that board would probably be a little anemic in exposing uh, problems that are going on within the mayor's administration, the, the administration of the Department of Correction. So they changed the charter to make the appointment process um, more open. They changed it to allow the city council to appoint three members. And for the first and second judiciary departments of New York State Courts, appellant court to appoint three members. But the mayor, Mayor de Blasio, unlike any mayor since the charter was changed in 1980, kind of has, has been appointing people to the Board of Correction incorrectly. The way it's supposed to be done is every time there's a vacancy, the appointment is supposed to rotate to the next appointment authority. So even if, let's say, the mayor has appointed someone, if they step down and the last person that was appointed was appointed by the city council and or the mayor, then the appointment goes to the court. But what the mayor's been doing is just allowing the appointments to be refilled by the original appointer. So in effect, there's been certain times where we've walked into Board of Correction meetings on the day when rule change votes will take place. For instance, in 2018, there was a rule change vote about the way that ACS would interact with the Department of Correction. And on that morning, there were two new Board of Correction members. <laughs> the old Board of Correction members had just disappeared, and there are two people that had just been plopped in their seats. But if those appointments had been rotated, the mayor wouldn't have the ability to just remove people, tell them to leave, basically, and replace them with people that he knew would vote the way that he needed them to vote that day to pass his specific rule change or his variance proposal that was in front of the board. So this has become a, a real problem. The board has become an anemic oversight board over the tenure of this mayor's time in office, intentionally so, to save the mayor embarrassment and to make it look like 
his plans and policies are efficacious. But in fact, the overall result of this anemic oversight is the chaos we see in the jails today. If we had robust oversight, if people weren't playing politics with the appointment process as outlined in the New York City Charter for the Department of, for the Board of Correction, which has oversight over the Department of Correction, we might have some real oversight. We might have known months ago about the chaos in the jails instead of just recently. Um, there were photographs that were circulated last week, earlier this week, by a New York Post reporter of what was happening in the intake cells. If we had robust oversight and we really had Board of Correction members and people on the Board of Correction staff that were going into the jail every day performing their oversight duties robustly as they should be, we would not be in the same place today. So this is a very dangerous precedent that the mayor has set. We did a lot of research into the, into the prior Board of Correction appointments. And in fact, it's only this mayor that has played politics with the appointment process. All the past mayors, even Bloomberg, honored the way that the city charter mandates appointment processes be taken out. And it's not just with the rotating appointment authority that he's been monkeying with the appointment process. The New York City Charter for the Board of Correction, as I said, also allows the first and second judges that had the first and second uh, appellate panels in New York State Court to appoint three members. But what the mayor has been doing is telling those judges who he wants to appoint. But that's not the way that the appointment process is supposed to go. By law, judges aren't allowed to make political appointments. So the New York City Charter instructs that those judges will appoint in connection with the mayor their choices. But in the past, the mayor has only performed the administrative function of making the appointment because by law, judges are not allowed to make political appointments. So in the past, the judges would write a letter to the mayor and say, this is who we want. But that's not the way this mayor has been doing it. He's been pulling the judges apart separately and saying, okay, you're the chief judge of the first division. This is who I want this time. Let's agree on it. And then the next time an appointment for a judicial panelist is up, he'll pull the chief judge from the second department aside. So he's, he's totally thwarted the judges' autonomy and their own ability to come to a combined mutual agreement on who they want to appoint. And effectively, he's gained six more seats that he gets to appoint, again, thwarting the oversight capabilities of the Board of Correction. These are the things that we fight against, and that these are the things that we're always nitpicking against. A lot of people in the advocacy community in New York City, especially in criminal justice, but across the board, are paid for by NGOs. They get their money from the mayor. They get their money from the governor. So as much as people, you know, do cute little tricks, stunt tricks, they're not necessarily so excited to robustly go at the mayor and to say the emperor has no clothes. And I have great fears for what happens next. Our chair and our director of the Board of Correction just quit in our last Board of Correction hearing last week. They announced at the beginning of the hearing that they were quitting. And in their next breath, they chagrined the fact that the mayor and governor had just ad hoc made this decision without consulting anyone and decided to move the women and girls from Rosie's to Bedford. So I have a sneaking suspicion that the reason that Jennifer Jones Austin, the chair of the New York City Board of Correction, quit because she might have been, I can't speak for her, but I am, I have worked for her, for, with her for a long time, and I think I know her somewhat, and it kind of felt to me like she quit because she was irked that her position basically 
was undermined. And the same with the director of the Board of Correction, Margaret Egan. She quit on the same day and announced that her last day would be December 30th. So effectively, Eric Adams, who I think will be our new mayor, I'm pretty sure he'll be our new mayor, but whomever that is, whether it's Curtis Siwa or if it's Eric Adams, they have an open slate of people that they get to populate the Board of Correction with. And this is not so great for us. Remember, Eric Adams was a paid shill for COBA, for the Corrections Officers Benevolent Association. They paid him to do work to advocate against ending solitary confinement. And he took that money. He's been a little low-key about his criminal justice uh, profile during the election, I noticed. But make no mistake, he has ideas and he has commitments and they're definitely not aligned with the advocacy community. So I'm very, I'm, I'm super alarmed um, and afraid of what happens next with the Board of Correction and oversight in our city jails. I, I heard uh, just last week that they appointed a, a great advocate to the board, but now I think we're gonna have four open seats on the Board of Correction that will all need appointments. And having that many open seats means that the appointments will be rushed. Oftentimes these people have, you know, their own political agendas, but we have to be careful with the people that we appoint because we rely on them for all kinds of reasons uh, to publish. um, For instance, the Board of Correction just last week published their death report on the death of Nicholas Feliciano. And it was a little sad they didn't read it into the record. They just released it, which irked a lot of us because usually they'll review those reports. It was very clear that for political reasons, they were trying to undermine that report. Um, And we've seen this over and over and over again. Uh, The former director of the Board of Correction, when she left, she left under a a real shadow because there were numbers that had been monkeyed with commingling. Advocates had discovered that for years, adults had been commingled with young adults in units against the rules, but only if the adults were placed in a unit with youth, but not if youth were placed in a unit with adults where they counted as commingled. <laughs> so there were all kinds of things that advocates have come up and, and thrown at the board. And that particular, I, I, I don't want to name her, but that particular former director did more work to hide problems, to destroy data and to fudge it. When she left the Board of Correction, Mayor de Blasio named a day, the day that she left after her. So forever, that day will be in her honor, which is nuts. If you look at the way that she handled appointments and the way that that appointment process was thwarted, it started to happen right under her reign at the Board of Correction. So we were always a little suspicious that there was no small amount of enormous coordination between the mayor's office and the Board of Correction in changing the appointment process. And Personally, I blame her for the deaths on Rikers Island. I really do. I don't want to start, you know, people banging on her door and protesting outside of her apartment building, but people need to be held accountable for the tricks that they performed to make sure that transparency and oversight weren't efficacious on the island. And you don't hear a lot of people screaming about these things because at the end of the day, people want to get paid. A lot of people in the advocacy community, like I said, are here to make a career out of their advocacy And that in itself is a problem. There are a lot of advocacy groups that were even for the initial transfer of women from Rosie's up to Bedford, which I thought was ridiculous. I I don't know what sort of feminist advocacy group you could think that you are if 
you have no problem flouting the Equal Protection Clause and you have no problem removing women from their home communities when men don't have to be. To find out more, please visit closerosies.org. This has been KiteLine. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the show. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.